the book of Haggai chapter 1. One of the things that I always seem to be working on is time management. Uh, every week, every month, every year, I'm always trying to find ways to save time, that is uh, really to better steward the time that God has given to me, finding shortcuts that allow me to get the work done that needs to be done in a shorter amount of time and to be more focused in my priorities using the time that God has given to me um, in a way that is pleasing to Him that does not let any of my responsibilities fall to the ground. And uh, a few years ago, I listened to an audio conference put out by the Franklin Covey uh, company called Focus. And you can imagine what that audio conference was about. It was about keeping focus. It was about getting focus, maintaining focus, maintaining focus during the week, balancing obligations between work and family and other interests, keeping your priorities together. And you can imagine someone going through this, learning all of the practical tips that they uh, advanced in that conference and having focus in their life according to their priorities. But what if their priorities were wrong? What if they had great focus? What if they had excellent time management, but they were focused on the wrong things? If their priorities were in fact the wrong priorities that they should have for their life? Well, then all of the effort, all of the focus, all of the energy invested in their life would simply be a waste, a foolish waste. And when we come to the book of Haggai, we see that is exactly what has happened to Israel. If you've read it before, that is, if you've read the book of Ezra before, or if you were here last week, you'll remember that after being in exile for several years, God moved in the hearts of pagan kings as well as in the hearts of his people, bringing them back from exile to the promised land in Canaan, specifically to rebuild the temple and begin to renew spiritually his people after decades of sin. And now as we look to the book of Haggai, what we see is that Israel had returned and was in some sense going strong, but they lacked the right focus. They lacked the right focus. Their priorities were out of alignment. And what they needed was God's prophet to proclaim to them the right priorities that they should be having. They needed God to come and help them to refocus their lives. Well, what was the problem? What was the problem? What was the wrong priority they had? What, in what way were they not focused correctly? Well, let's find out as we read the book of Haggai. Verse 1 of chapter 1 begins this way. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled homes while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. 
Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, and the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehoshadak the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, <coughs> and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you first came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the, field of, in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. 
The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> in 1860 in Wales, God sent revival to his people. Now understand, when I say revival, I don't mean someone set up a sign and said for the next five days we're going to have revival services. No, I mean God came down for six or seven months. God moved mightily through, at that point, someone who was completely unknown, a pastor named David Morgan. And it was through David Morgan's preaching that God turned the heart of Wales toward him. Lives were changed from those who had already professed faith in Christ. Those that were lost and dead in their sins turned towards him. It was a, a magnificent time of outpouring. And yet those that were there, those that would write of this event say there really wasn't anything any different in Morgan's preaching during that time. He preached the same way before revival came as he did during revival as he did after revival. The only difference was that God was upon him with extraordinary power. And so it, became to say, it, be, it came to be said that one night Morgan went to bed as a lamb and the next morning he woke as a lion. And frankly, that's very much the story of Haggai. Haggai, as far as we know, was a nobody. Except for in the book of Ezra, he is not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know anything about him. We're really not exactly sure even what his name means. And yet one day, he went to bed like a lamb, and the next morning, he woke up like a lion. Because that next morning, he knew what his purpose in life was. It was to be the prophet of God for his people, Israel. He was to preach to them God's word. For instead of being focused on renewing their life with God, <clears throat> Israel was focused on themselves. So God sent the prophet Haggai to reorder their lives. Specifically, to reorder them so that they would build the temple. For until that place was finished, a true worship of God could not be carried out. Furthermore, until the people put aside their plans and their desires and their priorities for a God-centered one, they would fail to bring God glory and they would fail to experience the blessings of the covenant they had with Him. Now, as we think about this setting for the book of Haggai, I think even today, like Israel, we can fool ourselves into believing we are headed in the right direction, that we are doing all the things that God wants us to do and that He is happy with our lives when in reality, in our heart of hearts, deep inside of us, at the very core of our being, we're not living for Him, we're living for ourselves. We can fool people by externals. We may even fool ourselves and, and into believing that we are, have a God-centered life when in reality we have nothing but a self-centered life. And we fit God in because it's convenient. And so this morning, I think if we have any hopes of living a God-centered life, we need to hear this message that Israel heard uh, a couple thousand years ago so that we ourselves can be refocused in the priority of our lives. From this book, I think two things stand out. Uh, first, we see the priority of a God-centered life. The priority of a God-centered life. 
At its heart, this is what the, prophets Haggai, uh, what the prophet Haggai's message is all about. Calling Israel to a God-centered life. Specifically, to make that a priority above all other priorities. And it's clear from the book itself that this was a needed message in Israel. We alluded to this fact uh, last week in, the, in our message on Ezra. And if you want to see the fuller picture, go back and read uh, Ezra chapters 1 through about chapter 6. And you'll get a fuller picture of what's going on. But essentially what we have is this. God calls Israel back from exile to build the temple. And they come back with uh, the treasure of the nations. Remember, God uh, through Cyrus provides for them the gold and the silver and construction materials, even animals to offer as sacrifices. And they begin to, to get set with work and they lay the foundation stone and then they stop spiritual apathy sets in as people begin to leave off the work that they were once called to the decree of cyrus that sent them back into the land happened in 538 bc the first year of his reign now in verse 1 chapter 1 we read that it's the second year of darius the king that's 520 B.C. Almost 20 years has passed and still no temple. Dude, what is going on with you guys over there? What has taken so long? You got the foundation stone laid almost, almost immediately and now 20 years on and nothing. You still got rubble where the temple should be standing. Well, I think the first problem was that Israel did not have the attitude of a God-centered life. They did not have the attitude of a God-centered life. They began to rebuild, getting the foundation laid. But then, as Ezra tells us, they began to face problems. Non-Israelites had moved into the land while they were gone. And they tried to discourage and undermine the work of the rebuilding of this temple. They, they didn't want Israel to come back. They did not want them to thrive and to prosper in that land. They wanted it for themselves. And then eventually local leaders went and, and spun the events to King Artaxerxes so that he would suspend the work by royal edict. He would tell them, you have to stop. And yet, in the midst of all of this, instead of pressing on with a clear sense of direction because God had said, this is my calling on your life, rebuild the temple, they said to one another in verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. With biting sarcasm, the Lord responds, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God is saying, you were far too quick to declare the time wasn't right to rebuild the temple, considering the state of the houses you live in. Now, just think about how, how Israel would have rationalized this in their own day. After all, they would have said, well, look, you know, we're, we're a people coming out of exile. You know, yeah, we've been given all this stuff, but we've got we've to rebuild society. We have to start things going again. We have to have time to, to plant crops and get ourselves settled. And then, then we will spend our time worried about rebuilding the temple. But God says, you know, that's an interesting argument because you've had the time, you've had the resources, you've had the energy to build your own homes and not just shacks. It's not like these little plywood things they, that they've built up. No, these things are stable, permanent dwellings. They're not living in tents. Haggai says these are paneled homes. That means they have wood paneling covering not just the ceiling, but the walls as well. A big investment for that day. They have nice homes, yet God himself remains homeless, as it were. After almost 20 years, there is no temple. 
No temple meant no worship the way God wanted. No worship meant no priority of a God-centered life. If they were not concerned to reestablish God at the center of their life, that spoke volumes. I don't know that any of us have ever uh, faced fear because of doing the right thing for God in the way that, that Israel would have faced fear. You know, if, if, the, if the leader of the superpower uh, nation of the world says, you've got to stop building that temple, I think there'd be a little bit of, of a level of fear involved, right? And yet, clearly, God expected them to press on. In the same way that they first entered the promised land and they looked and said, what are we going to do? And Joshua said, look, we've got our orders. We're going. And God gave them the victory. How much more now in the rebuilding of this temple that God has very specifically called them to do would he not be with them? So I don't think we fear in that way. But, you know, we often fear in other ways, don't we? We fear for our pocketbooks. We fear for our reputations. We fear that we're not going to be happy. And all of those things keep us from being thoroughly God-centered in our lives. And yet, that is the very thing we were made for. The very, the very reason we have been brought into existence from the dust of the earth is to live a God-centered life, for Him to be the driving priority in all that we do. And more than, more than, than, than fear keeping us from that... Having a God-centered life will actually free us from fear and give us true and lasting happiness. Again, because this is what we were made for. And therefore, we not only need to have the attitude of a God-centered life, we need to understand the aim of a God-centered life, the aim of a God-centered life. Look again at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That is the aim of a God-centered life, loved ones. This is why we should want to live our lives, seeking to bring God pleasure and to make much of Him. Though it seems contrary to our way of thinking and what the culture says around us, the Bible teaches over and over and over again. In fact, the call of Christ to salvation says, if you die to yourself, then you will have life. If you give up everything that you have for me, then I will give you everything you could possibly imagine. Though you would put yourself on the farthest back burner, off the stove, on the floor, under the stove, then I will exalt you and raise you up in glory with myself. We were made for God. And therefore, the greatest pleasure we will have is to make Him the treasure of our lives. Now, if you are married, hopefully you understand something of this principle. After all, in a healthy marriage, in a marriage that is marked by a real love, the greatest pleasure a spouse can have is in finding the other person having joy brought to their life. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, let me just be honest. There are things around my house. There are projects that I have done and that still need to be done. And frankly, I could care less if they get done. I would leave them until the return of Christ if I could. But there's something called the honey-do list. Are you familiar with this? Honey, do this. Honey, do that. And you know what? Because Melinda says, I, would, I want this done. I would like us to do this. This needs to be painted. And da, 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 da. I do it. Why? Not because I'm getting something out of it, frankly. I could, again, I could care less. Call somebody else. You know, let it sit. Whatever. But she wants it done. And I know if I do this for her, she is going to be happy. And if she is happy, then I am going to be happy. Now, let's just be honest here. 
uh, I don't have a perfect marriage. I got a good marriage, but it's by no means perfect. There's work to be done. And there are times when uh, I don't love Melinda the way that I should. And in selfishness, I say, I don't care that she wants that done. I don't want to do it. I got other things that I would rather be doing, and I don't do it. But in that moment, I have forgotten. I have forgotten what I have known and what I have seen, what the Bible has promised, and that is when I put her needs in front of mine, then I mysteriously wind up being happy and joyful and fulfilled and seeing her made much of and seeing her have joy. That's why I have to repent, not just to her, but to God. And I have to to, to go back and to refocus and reprioritize my life. And likewise, the Bible is clear, the great aim of our life Not just the duty for which we were made, but the thing that will bring us our greatest delight is to devote ourselves to bringing God happiness, to bringing Him pleasure by exalting Him in glory. This is the great theme of the Bible that Paul summarizes well in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he tells the Corinthians, whatever you are doing, in this particular situation, it was, how are you going to eat and drink? And He says, whatever you're doing, however you go about doing it, do it all for the glory of God. And he tells us why, previously in chapter 6, that same book, why this is the great aim of our life. It's not just because we have been created for that. We not just because we have been created for his glory, but we have been purchased out of sin and death for his glory. He tells the Corinthian Christians, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. God has created all things to bring Him glory. But more than that now, though fallen as a created being, God has now saved us up out of that. And He says, because you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, you're not yours. Doubly so now. It is our aim in life to be God-centered, to be living a God-centered life. And if we do that, even as God promised Israel, we will also find the blessings of a God-centered life. This is the second major thing we want to see from the book of Haggai, the blessings of a God-centered life. As we read Haggai at the beginning, or as we, as we read it at the beginning, I hope you took note of the situation. Not only was God calling them to refocus their lives, but He was helping them to see the consequences of the last 20 years. He was pointing out to them what it looks like for people who say they belong to God, yet do not put their confidence in Him. Do not make Him the center priority. He says in chapter 1, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. How would you like that? It says you get paid 20 bucks for the day. And you say, great, thanks. You stick it in your pocket. By the time you get home, you've only got five because there's a hole in your pants. and It's been dropping out all over the place. Consider your ways, says the Lord of hosts. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. <coughs> and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought in the land and the hills and the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, on all their labors. God is saying, look, it's been 20 years. Have you, have you not stopped to think why it is you don't have a good harvest? 
I mean, maybe after the first year, you're thinking we're, we're getting the land back in the groove of producing. And so maybe after the second year, you're still thinking, okay, it's going to start building now. It's been 20 years and you've had no good harvest. Have you never stopped to consider why that is, O Israel? Have you forgotten the covenant promises of abundant crops and fertile lands and blessings from heaven for your obedience? Yes, apparently they have forgotten. They have failed to give God his due. And therefore, what they have lost is the blessing of Almighty God. However, Haggai preaches. And the people do what God's people should always do when confronted with God's word. They obey. At the end of chapter 1, we read this, Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Therefore the Lord says to them, from this day on I will bless you. Here is the wonderful thing, is that Haggai comes in and begins preaching, and the people say, we messed up, we, we've sinned, we haven't done what we should, and so they obey the word of the Lord, and they get back on track. God becomes the priority of their life again. The temple project gets on the move, and God says, for your faithfulness, for your repentance and obedience now, I will bless you. Specifically, he says, he's going to bless them in three ways. First, he's going to bring physical blessings. He's going to bring physical blessings. <clears throat> In chapter 2, God says to his people, Consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw up 50 measures, there was but 20. And he goes on and on and on. He says, but now, verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. I love that line in verse 19. Uh, and the beginning of verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, look, I'm getting ready to bless you. Have you planted everything? Or are you holding something back? Do you, are you thinking, well, we've, you know, we, this may not go well. So we're gonna keep, He says, don't hold anything back. If you've got seed in the barn, you better get it out because when that seed drops, it is going to explode at harvest time. I'm going to pour out my blessing like you have never seen before because you have been obedient to me. Just as exile and cursing, you see, were promised for unfaithfulness to the covenant between God and Israel, so also blessings and prosperity were promised for obedience and faithfulness. God is saying, I haven't forgotten the covenant I made with you, and you shouldn't either. Remember the covenant promises. You've already experienced the cursings. You've already experienced the promise of exile. Why not experience the promise of blessing as well? Turn back to me with a God-centered lives and you will find blessing and prosperity. You will reap the reward of refocusing your lives on me. But more importantly, we also see that God gives them spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? That is to say, if you remember... The temple, when Solomon built it, was massive and it was, it was majestic. It was fitting. But remember when they came back, they didn't have enough material. 
They couldn't redo it in the same kind of grandeur. And so when they laid the foundation stone, you remember there were people that had saw the old temple before it was destroyed, and they wept because they knew this is, not, this is, a, pale, this is a pale comparison to what we used to have. And so God asked him, do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They remembered the old temple, some of them did anyway, and he says, look, from the outward appearance, it looks like this is going to be nothing. It looks like this is going to be measly and, and puny and you're, and you're weeping over it. But understand, it's not what's on the outside that matters. And through this temple, there is going to be a kind of glory displayed that you cannot possibly imagine. Don't you believe for a minute that I've forgotten you? God says the spiritual blessing involves His Spirit remaining with them. He says, I have not left you. I have not forgotten you. My presence is with you. You know, in just the last few weeks, one of the missionary David Livingston's final letters was found. And you may not know anything about Livingston. He was a missionary in Africa back uh, when missions was, was very much pioneer missions. People were going where uh, the gospel had not been in centuries and after many hardships and dangers in Africa, he received an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And on that occasion, he said this, quote, Would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I couldn't understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was Jesus' words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. On those words I staked everything, and they never failed. Same God who to his church said, I will always be with you to the very end is the same God who now says to his people, take courage, don't fear. My spirit is with you. I am with you till the end. Secondly, he says that the spiritual blessing will be peace. Verse 9. Peace with himself is what he means. Spiritual rest that comes with the forgiveness of sins. They have sinned grievously. And God says, I will forgive those sins. Finally, he says, he will fill the temple with the glory of his name. Verse 7. Though outwardly the temple wasn't as spectacular as the old one, God would says, I will cause the treasures of the nations to come and to be in that place. Now certainly this was partly seen by Haggai himself as the silver and the gold of the nations was used to build this temple in the first place. But what we want to see is that God meant something far greater than anything Haggai would ever see. And this leads to the last spiritual pull blessing that God promised, and that is messianic blessings. Messianic blessings. Here's the reality. If the glory of the second temple is measured in terms of wealth or financial influence, then this prophetic word failed. God didn't keep his word. 
If it's simply measured in, in physical terms, then it failed because it never achieved. The temple never achieved what it once had in Solomon up right up until AD 70 when it was destroyed. But notice... Notice the glory of the temple is bound up with the shaking of the heavens and the earth. You remember that? And look what he says just at the last few verses of chapter 2. Haggai is told, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Uh Uh-oh. Is he shaking a second time? Or is he shaking at the same time? I am shaking the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the kingdom, the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots with their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Gone to the prophet Haggai says there will be a point in the future when he will shake the heavens and the earth and he will overturn kings and kingdoms and he will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. Now, if you know, a signet ring is a sign of royal authority and ownership. It was the kind of thing when the decree was made, the, the, the king would, would dip the thing in the wax and right in there and say, look, this is what I want done. And he would hand it out and people would say, oh, the king's ring is in that thing. We, we better do this thing. And so God now says, a day is coming when he is going to use his chosen one to set his authentic impression of power and ownership upon all the nations of the world. And again, poor Zerubbabel. Did God do that through him? No. Does that mean the word of the Lord failed? No, it means we need to understand better what God is talking about here. Have you noticed that over and over and over and over again, you don't just have it once, you have it every single time just about he's addressed. Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, right? Why is that significant? Why is God hammering that into his people and into us? Because Shatiel was a descendant of King Jehoiakim, who was himself a descendant of King David. Once again, God is saying to Israel, you've forgotten the covenant. You've broken the covenant. But I haven't. I haven't forgotten it. And I will not break it. I have not forsaken my promises to you. Specifically here, he says, I will remember my promises to send a Messiah in the line of David. I think that is what he is getting at in this passage. I think that is what Haggai is wanting the people to understand The restoration of the temple, the reign of the Messiah that is looked forward to here is finally realized in the ultimate David, King Jesus himself. It was in his coming, his death for sinners on the cross that brings ultimate peace with God. As God's ultimate chosen one, he brings us not just to his people Israel, but to all the nations. He fulfills the ultimate purpose of the temple in being the place where God and humanity meet But more than that, on the day, the day of his return, he will reign over all. He will receive the treasures of the nations as king above all kings and lord above all lords. And we just need to stop and say, if you are here this morning and you you do not know King Jesus in a way that makes you long for his return. That is to say, you have never seen him as the one who died on the cross for your sins, that you might have peace with God, then you need to turn to him today in faith. Because the only way, the only way to be spared from being trampled under his foot when he comes to reign is by being one of his 
followers, his disciples, even his spiritual brothers, Paul says. It's not by obedience to his will. It is by turning to him in faith. He died the death you deserve under God's wrath. And it's only by trusting in his atoning work that you will have peace with God. Now what about you, O Christian? As you hear about these blessings that are promised to Israel for obedience, for faithfulness, physical blessings, spiritual blessings, what, what do you understand your place to be in hearing those promises and assurances of prosperity? You see, I think there would probably have been a day when, frankly, we wouldn't even have to think too much about it. But now, it seems more than ever, we have... We have people on television and in pulpits around this world, and in fact, especially in this country, saying, if you will just obey God, if you will just have faith in Him, then the world is yours. You will never have need of money again. You will never have need of medicine again because God will bless you only if you are obedient in faith. And the question is, is that true? And the, answer, the quick answer to that one is no. But the second answer is, why not? Why should we not read Haggai as a, as a call to faithfulness so that we might be blessed in the same way? In fact, I, I, will, I will say that you often hear people take language applied to Israel and apply it to the United States and would say, you know, if, you know, if we would just turn back to God, all of our financial problems would be better. Well, I don't know that's true. And I'll tell you why at the end of the sermon. If you'd say, oh, well, what's the answer? Just, just wait. Just wait and, and, and you'll get it, Okay. But right now we need to ask ourselves, what is our relationship to these promises in Israel? I think we need to think about a couple of things. First of all, we need to think about this. What God did with Israel was unique in the history of His dealings with humanity. Unlike any nation that has come before or since, there was a blending of faith in God with political leadership, governing law, and agricultural prosperity. In every sense of the word, Israel was a theocracy. They were in a unique covenant relationship with God, as we've already said, that meant if you obey, you live and are blessed. If you disobey, you die and are cursed. And there's no other nation in the world that has that kind of relationship with God anymore. Even His people, we are not Israel today. But more than that, now that Messiah has come, there has been a massive shift in the very nature of the people of God. Whereas before, Israel was kind of situated, uh, very clearly cut off by a ring of, of, of real and practical holiness from the other nations. A light to the Gentiles, yes, but a, a light that kind of shone out and called people in but didn't really do much else. It was very much a passive light that went to the Gentiles. And so, yes, some had faith, some converted. But now that Christ has come, that has dramatically changed. Now our life is not one of sitting in comfort and ease, expecting material blessings in any one land. The call for us is to go. The call for us is to uproot and to see our lives not tied to any physical land, to any human citizenship, but to see our lives hid in heaven with Christ so that we can live as sojourners and exiles in this sinful world, pursuing above all things the glory of God and the nations, not expecting them to come to us, but us going to them. And Christ is clear what that means is leaving behind mother and father and brother and sister. It's about selling all that we have so that we can go forward unencumbered, worried about material things so that people in this world who need the light of Christ will hear it. 
That is the role that we have now. Paul says, we are ambassadors in a foreign land representing King Jesus. The call now on our life is one of urgency and sacrifice for the sake of the nations. All that we have, all that we have from our intelligence to our natural abilities to giftings to vehicles to the clothes on my back, all of these things are given over in service to Christ for the glory of His name. What we need is not more money. We don't need more land. We need God to come down and give the spiritual blessing of His presence in our life so that we can fulfill the call that He has placed on our lives to the Great Commission of the Gospel. Friends, global Christianity is radically changing. Africa, Asia, and South America are now the center of Christianity. They are experiencing explosive growth with approximately 77,000 new believers worldwide every day. Not every week, not every month, not every year, every day. Now contrast that with the church in the West, here in the U.S. and in places like Europe, where we are basically shrinking. We are moving backward in terms of growth. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't getting saved. It doesn't mean the gospel is not advancing. But what it means is there are more Christians dying than there are new Christians coming to faith. In 1949, China only had 4 million Christians. Today, that number stands at about 82 million. David Aikman, the former Beijing bureau chief for Time magazine, projects that within a few decades, one in three Chinese could be Christian. Today, there are twice as many Presbyterians in South Korea as there are in the United States. If I were to say to you, what does the average, statistically, what does the average Anglican look like? You may be tempted to think of a doting old man in England somewhere. The reality is it's a Nigerian mother of six. That's the average Anglican today. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Why is God's blessing being poured out on those areas of the world and not us? Where money is scarce, Christian books and resources are few, national economies are poor, the church is exploding with growth. While here, in a land of financial prosperity, material blessing, it's shrinking. Even here, where the poorest Christian will be considered rich in the West of the world, I think statistics show that the spread and the success of the gospel is not dependent on money or programs. It's not dependent on external apparent success. The question is, is it time for us to refocus our lives? Individually, as a church body, as a nation of Christians, perhaps we have grown accustomed to the routine of Christianity and we've lost the heart of it. Perhaps we have allowed ourselves to be deceived into thinking God is at the center of our lives when He's somewhere else. Instead of the sun that sits at the heart of the solar system, He's Mars or Jupiter perhaps even Pluto. Perhaps it's time for us to do some serious heart work, evaluating where is God in our life? Where are our priorities? Maybe it's time some of us stop playing games and repent of our self-centeredness and call out to God 
that he would pour out his spirit upon us in the same way he did with Israel, in the same way he is doing with people around the world today so that we would not live lives centered on us and what is easy for us and what is nice for us and what is enjoyable for us and what is comfortable for us, but rather our lives would be focused and centered on God and on the pursuit of his glory above all else. Normally, at the end of the service, we sing, and frankly, this morning, I don't think we need to sing. I think we need to pray. And so if you're on the music team, I would say just stay put. I would ask Lisa if you would come and if you would play. I just want to call us to prayer right now. And I want to say, you can, it doesn't matter what physical posture you take. It doesn't matter where you're at in terms of your location. But if you want to kneel on the ground, if you want to get out in the aisle and get on your face, if you want to come down here and make this an altar before God, you do what you need to do to demonstrate to yourself and to God that you want more than anything else a God-centered life. How sad would it be for us to have the veneer of success when really we're failing miserably in the mission that God has given to us? Let's pray and ask God to come and do a work in our lives. Father, as we are about to enter into a season of prayer, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, God, that you would help us to not be fearful of anything in this room or in the days to come, but God, we would simply desire to be obedient to you. We ask all this for Jesus' sake.